Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. I think this is the first time we've ever had two full hours devoted to different aspects of entertainment. On today's program, we'll be talking with the director and screenwriter Denis Villeneuve of Dune and Dune Part 2. He joins us today with the film opening and wide release tomorrow. We'll also be talking next hour about porn and AI. So many people in that industry are looking for different ways of using artificial intelligence to create knockoff versions of of human performers and to do highly customized sexually explicit material. We'll talk about the ethics involved in that, the business aspect as well, and we'll be talking with the Washington Post reporter who did a, a really in-depth look at the multiple facets of AI and adult entertainment. We'll talk about vintage movie theaters here in Southern California that show not just classic but new films as well. I'll be interested to hear uh, your favorites uh, from the new art to the Vista, uh, the uh, Egyptian theater, so many great venues here in Southern California. But we begin on the theme of entertainment with the Anklers, writer of the daily entertainment industry newsletter, The Wake Up, Sean McNulty. Sean, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Larry. Enjoying our partnership uh, between LAist and the Ankler. Let's start first with what's happening at Netflix. We get the word that they're expected to be raising prices for their streaming plans yet, uh, yet again, but there's also a change in one of the creative heads of the company. Yeah, so they have a uh, new head of Netflix films. He's starting on April 1st. That's uh, Dan Lin, who uh, was a Warner Brothers executive way back when, but has been a producer of some pretty large movies of the past uh, decade plus here, anywhere from the the Lego movies to the It movies to Aladdin and and things like that. So he'll be starting April 1st. Uh, Scott Stuber, the previous president, uh, he has announced that he was stepping down in, in mid-January. He's uh, leaving here in March. So uh, this is the transition. The new the new era will begin here at Netflix Films. Is there anything to read into that in terms of the types of films that Net- Netflix is going to fund and offer? Well, they, the guys actually have pretty similar backgrounds. Scott was an executive at Universal earlier in his career, and he went out to be a producer as well. So it's it's the resumes are pretty similar, which indicates they're not making a material change to their strategy, certainly. Um, 
you know, uh, the, there was no announcement with that. They have an announcement for over 40 films uh, coming out this year on Netflix, not including documentaries. Uh, so that volume is probably not going to change. Maybe, you know, perhaps there's a little more of a, a global view, but this there are uh, that business is kind of run out of individual territories. So there's really not, this doesn't indicate too much of a, a change in thinking at Netflix. Uh, in next hour with our weekly TV talk segment, our critics are going to review Avatar The Last Airbender, which Lynn was exactly executive producer of that, right? Correct. So that was his uh, project. He also did uh, the, the, the two popes over at HBO. So he has some, some TV experience as well, but he'll be you know, solely focused on on the movie business there at Netflix. All right. And Netflix at this point, are, are they the only one of the streamers that's showing profitability? Uh, well, Larry, that depends how you define profitability. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot. By, this is Hollywood large. economics. It's not like regular companies. I forgot. Uh, if you ask the folks at Warner Brothers Discovery, they will tell you proudly that their streaming business made a, about a hundred million dollar profit there in Q3. Um, so that technically is a profitable streaming business. Warner Brothers Discovery lost money overall, had a net loss in, in Q4 this uh, of 2023. Uh, but Netflix is over well over a billion dollars in profit. So yes, by far, the Netflix is the profitable streamer out there. And then uh, Disney, what uh, change is happening in the executive suite at Disney? Yeah, big week here in uh, the tops of film studios. So they're uh, longtime uh, Walt Disney live action films head, Sean Bailey. Uh, he's going to be leaving the company and they have a new, they're promoting from within there. Uh, David Greenbaum, who was the president or is the president of, of uh, Searchlight, which is kind of their, you know, independent prestige film division. Uh, he's going to come up to lead uh, Disney live action films. So things like The Haunted Mansion, Little Mermaid, uh, the upcoming uh, Mufasa film. And also uh, their Fox studio films. So things like uh, The Creator, The Haunting in Venice, kind of those, you know, live action, original original films. So those two divisions will have a new head. This does not affect Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, or Disney animation. Those are all run by different people. So just a, a distinction point there. And so for each of the heads of those divisions of, of Disney, do they report to the same person? Is that go straight to Bob Iger or is there a level between? There's Alan Bergman. He's a head of film who, who uh, manages all those executives and, and, and uh, David will, will report into him. So, yeah, there's one and, and then Alan reports into Bob Iger, this, you know, the CEO. We're talking with Sean McNulty of The Ankler, a writer of the Daily Entertainment Industry Newsletter, The Wake Up. Sean with us to talk about some of the big changes that are happening in in the film and television industry locally. If you have questions for him about any of the changes that are taking place, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So what's happening with Disney's film division overall? Because certainly what we hear about The Little Mermaid and and uh, you know some of the other releases, is that they're just not getting the hits like they did with previous genres of film. Yeah, I mean, it was a bad year in 2023. There's no way to really spin this. Uh, Guardians Volume 3 did well, but a lot of expensive misfires. Not, not only did they, you know, kind of miss at the box office, they spent a lot of money to make them uh, across the board from, you know, uh, the Marvels in November to Wish, which was also in November. Uh, the Haunted Mansion I mentioned was a, a big money loser back in July. The creator, which I mentioned as well, also didn't do well for them. Uh, so, you know, Bob Iger knows this. He's publicly addressed it in, in interviews and on his earnings calls that things have to change. 
And Disney's kind of, you know, they're taking 2024 to not clear the slate, but they've, you know, they have one Marvel film, the Deadpool versus Wolverine film, which is kind of a, you know, an offshoot of Marvel. It's a, kind of its own universe there in the, the R-rated land. Um, you know, Star Wars is coming back in the end of 2025. So that's not even coming out for another almost, you know, two years now. So, you know, Bob has, you know, rolled up his sleeves and gotten into the creative at the company. Uh, they have four Marvel films set for 2025. So that's, you know, going to come back. We'll see what, you know, this transition uh, to David means for the live action films. But, you know, Mufasa has already has a date of uh, Christmas uh, this year for, for Disney or, or December. Uh, so, uh, you know, we shall see. But this year is going to be a little bit light. And Iger knows there are changes that have to be, have to be made. There was not a great year, and, you know, whether that directly affected Sean's position, you know, he was there for a long time, had a lot of success, um, but as I said, not not a great year coming off of uh, the Haunted Mansion. The Little Mermaid made a little bit of profit, but only made about half as much as the previous live-action adaptations have made, so it certainly wasn't a great moment there, and his contract was actually up in early 2025. So they, you know, figured this was the time to, to make a change. Mm. And, and Sean, you know, as we're talking about this, there's so many of these different franchises that Disney has really leaned into and developed that IP and Marvel and, and, and the animated properties to live action, all these different things. Now they're starting, it seems pretty consistently to underperform. And so then the question is, if, if Disney's built its film industry model on this, is it going to have to pivot into doing more original types of, of content because they're not going to be able to rely uh, on the franchises to the extent that they have? The audience may be getting fatigued with them. Yeah, and Iger has definitely dialed back the frequency. He's, you know, the even in terms of the Disney Plus, you know, Marvel series and Star Wars series, they were coming at a much faster clip, uh, you know, over the maybe 2021, 20, 22. Uh, that's been dialed back. They've gotten the message, Larry, uh, about, you know, a little bit too much, guys, you know, uh, dial this back. So we'll see how that, you know, what that transpires to, what that translates to. Um, but, uh, you know, it's either a question, Larry, is it the, the, the quality of the films or the people tired of it? You know, mm, in a certain yeah, sense, you had just said, yeah. uh, Madam Webb come out, which, you know, was, was pretty universally panned, which yeah. was a Sony film and not a Disney film, but certainly a Marvel universe character, uh, said the Marvels already did not do well last year. You know, Guardians did pretty well, Guardians Volume 3, but that was the last movie in that edition. So, but to your, answer your question, I mean, you know, the studios don't think so, uh, both on both uh, Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney, because uh, DC is coming back in 2025 as well. Uh, this is under the new era under uh, James Gunn. So, then this is that Disney is going to, they're making four films, uh, big temples next year, Captain America, the Thunderbolts, uh, you know, so they have uh, the, the four big movies next year for, for Marvel. So that, they don't think they don't have that point of view. We're going to find out, Larry. I think, uh, you know, the buzz on Deadpool versus Wolverine is pretty good to that trailer. Had a, you know, want to set a record for, for views worldwide when it dropped during the Super Bowl. So there's some enthusiasm. And maybe, you know, Larry, uh, when you go away for a while, you come back and you kind of remember what you liked about it in the first place. And I think, but that's what. Iger is certainly counting yeah. on here. Sean McNulty of The Ankler with us on AirTalk Paramount Global yesterday announcing its fourth quarter earnings. And um, 
what we see is that streaming is it continues to be a challenge for uh, Paramount with its Paramount Plus entry, uh, you know, tempting to gain a larger share of the market. Peacock having a similar challenge for Comcast Universal. Um, but what was your takeaway on on the Paramount uh, results yesterday, Sean? Well, I mean, there's no hiding the numbers. I mean, Q4 was a bad quarter, which is, I don't think anybody was surprised by that. And even, you know, the stock is so far up about 6% this morning. You know, they Wall Street understood that. Um, but there's there's some some green shoots in the business, I guess, maybe is the best way to put it, Larry. Um, I mean, overall, you know, revenue was down 6%. TV advertising was down 15%. Remember, this is the fourth quarter last year, so October through December. So remember the strikes. There were no, you know, all the CBS shows did not return. They're just returning now on the schedule. Um, so they had the NFL and college football, um, you know, this, this, they have uh, three big studio divisions, uh, TV studio produ- divisions that produce TV shows. And they, you know, uh, sensibly couldn't really make those, uh, you know, during the strikes last year, uh, there was nothing shooting. They have a whole big lot there of uh, Melrose, the famous Paramount lot. That's like, you know, a cost as well. So all these things affected the Q4 numbers. Um, and as you said, the streaming numbers, they lost another $490 million uh, alone in Q4, again, which they you know had already uh, anticipated. Um, but they said they're going to, the U.S. streaming business will reach profitability in 2025. So they finally put a date on that. They had not said anything to that effect uh, prior to the to their earnings call. So that was you know a positive. The, the losses will be less in 2024. But Paramount has really cut back on, you know, and they said cut back on their spending. They were spending too much and they were not getting a return on investment. So, you know, that's a smart move. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's been a, the cost has been a lot of layoffs. They just laid off another 800 people or are laying off 800 people here in, in Q1. They're going to take another billion dollar write down uh, here in Q1 for part of those is uh, the layoff costs. And part of that is they're pulling back on all their international local production. And they're going to let the Hollywood hits drive their their streaming services globally, which they say is what people are watching anyway. So, you know, the business, the decisions are smart. They made a, some big bets that are a lot of spending in a different era, and it's a different time right now. So, you know, the numbers don't quite reflect that yet, but their business strategy is sound for the cards that they that they have yeah. larry I, I i so wonder what um you know they they put a lot of eggs in the uh, star trek franchise basket mm-hmm. with paramount plus and with strange new worlds which is a very popular new series uh, second season coming later this year and i wonder if the budget cutback is going to have an effect on the effects heavy shows like the star trek ones or it's more a matter they're just not going to be developing as as many different offerings yeah, I you know they didn't mention Star Trek by name. I would you know I'm with you on that. I think that's pretty safe, and they're they're big believers in that franchise. You know the things they are doing that they mentioned doing. Um, they're going to be shooting a lot more shows internationally, um, where it's you know not as expensive to shoot. Uh, at least that's what they're telling us. So there's a new. They announced two series uh, yesterday, an, an uh, NCIS spinoff, which is going to be set in Europe, um, and a new uh, Ray Donovan, loosely based on Ray Donovan, uh, called the Donovan, set over in the UK. Mm. So they're you know the volume. I think will come down, Larry. I think you're entirely right in the ones they are doing. They're going to try and make more, you know, quote unquote, economically, which means probably fewer jobs here, unfortunately, for people yeah. in production here in the U.S. So that seems to be the tactic there. To, again, they had to get their 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 costs under control, and they have to start paying. They have some a large looming debt over twelve billion dollars uh, in long term debt there. So you know they have they have some bills to pay, Larry. Sean, thank you so much. Sure appreciate you joining us. We'll look forward to having you with us again soon. 
All right, happy to do it. Thanks so much. Sean McNulty writes The Wake Up, the daily entertainment industry newsletter for The Ankler. Our partner on entertainment here on LA is 89.3. We continue on our entertainment theme today with a look at the great movie houses of Southern California that are still showing films, whether current releases or that are showing uh, some of the classic films that we love, from The Vista to The Egyptian to The Arrow. We'll be talking about the great movie houses when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. One of my favorite topics are historic venues in Southern California. And what's better than a classic theater to see a classic or even new release? There's something about being in a place that isn't a multiplex, but has a sense of those seats being filled by movie lovers of multiple generations. And that's the focus of a brand new How to L.A. podcast from LA Studios. It's a Revival House series. Victoria Alejandro is with us to talk about it. Victoria, good morning. Hi, Larry. Good morning. Happy to be here. I know you're a big film lover as well. And what's it been like for you to interview people about so many of these great venues? It has been so immensely touching. Um, I don't think I expected how emotional I would get after every interview. Um, Just hearing the stories of programmers and theater managers and people who have taken over their families, family-run cinema. Um, I could talk to everybody for hours. Yeah, like the Lemleys, a family-run business, multiple generations. Well, let's listen to an excerpt last Thursday's episode of Revival House, focused on the new Beverly Cinema in the Fairfax District. Victoria talks to theater manager of the new Beverly, Jules McLean. I think that is such a myth about, oh, I'm afraid to go to the movies alone and stuff like that. I run the New Beverly. I got lots of friends. I can't tell you how many times I come alone to the New Beverly or other theaters. So, and I feel like I'm not alone. So, you know, the movies are my friends. The movies are also very much my friends. Now, in the latest episode of Revival House, which drops today, it focuses on Vidiots, which is a new theater taking over the historic Eagle Theater in Eagle Rock. It's also a video rental store as well. That's how Vidiots started life in Santa Monica before moving to Eagle Rock. Here's Maggie McKay, the executive director of Vidiots, which is a nonprofit. I knew we needed to be in a residential neighborhood. 
I knew we needed a commercial property. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't, certainly didn't think we were going to end up in a historic movie theater. That was luck. Suddenly, the opportunity to revitalize a major part of Eagle Rock was on the table. Because now we were bringing back two very important film hubs to the city of Los Angeles. This movie theater was really important from 1929 until 2000 to this community. And we're reviving our Film Week screening series at Vidiots with details to follow. So we'll let you know. This continues our Film Week Critics series where we have a variety of classic films shot in Los Angeles with L.A.-centric themes. So uh, we've already shown such classics as Chinatown and so many others. But we'll have, we'll tell you about those details. But, uh, Victoria, let, let's talk about some of the other theaters that you highlight here. Yeah, I mean... Starting with, I'm, I'm still just hung up on Vidiots. Um, that as a space, it is the most comfortable place to see a movie. Yeah. I think in yeah. the city. Um, and I was telling Maggie that, and I was like, the projection's incredible. The legroom is incredible. The sight lines are great. And she said that she actually, when putting together the space, when renovating the space, called Jules McLean. She hadn't had a lot of support. Um, it was It was kind of tough to find folks in the city uh, to teach you how to put together a movie theater and she called Jules and took her advice and it is now for for my the price of a ticket I think it's the best place to see a, a movie in the city and it has a great drop-in vibe what I love about video so is you just feel like you could be walking down the street see the title on the market oh I'm gonna go where where so much of movie going now seems less spontaneous you buy a ticket on whatever and and I love that feel about video that uh, you can buy in advance but it has that great drop-in feel as well. What I'd love to hear from our AirTalk listeners, what is your favorite place in a historic venue to go see either a revival of a classic film or to see a new film that's being shown there? We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And we have a brand new way for you to share your input with us on AirTalk. That's with AirTalk now incorporated at LAS.com. We are right there with all of our programs, and you'll see a box that you can submit your question or your comment to AirTalk right there on the page. Go to LAS.com slash AirTalk, and you'll find all the information there. Fred in Woodland Hill says, I'm a weekly visitor to the Lemley and Landmark chains. There are rarely other patrons that I often have whole rows to myself. I'm amazed that they're still going. Well, that is a huge issue that for many of our boutique theaters, for lack of a better term, they're facing real economic headwinds because so many of those movies are available to be streamed as well, Victoria. Yeah, something we've really been running into is just distinguishing the experience. And something I've heard a lot about from theater managers, patrons, programmers, is that even if you have a movie available at home, you can't replicate the experience of sitting next to somebody and gasping at the same time, catching each other in the lobby afterwards to talk about what you felt. Um, it just, it's not really replicatable, but also how delightful to have so many options to see a movie. Yeah, and with a classic film, because we think of oh, old movies, we'll watch them on TV or whatever. 
I will never forget the night that we did uh, in the theater at Ace Hotel, classic, uh, began life as the United Artists. And we show Jackie Brown. And uh, this whole theater full of one of fans of one of my favorite films and people cheering. And we had Quentin on afterwards to talk about the film on stage. It, it, it's a night I will never forget because that's a movie I've watched at, at home multiple times. I love the movie. But to see it with fans of the film, to have that shared experience of something you love, whether it's you know Sunset Boulevard or another classic or a new film where everybody in the room is eagerly anticipating what this director's next offering is going to be, you know, Greta Gerwig has a new film or whoever it is, and you're there with fans, that's a very exciting experience. Yeah, I just saw Tenet for the third time. <laughs> I'm one of those folks. Yeah. Um, because I wanted to see an IMAX, and the, it was packed. It's been out since 2020. It's been yeah. available on streaming and Blu-ray. Yeah. And people are still selling it out. Yeah, you could have watched it in your slippers, but there's something about being there, you know, uh, going out and seeing it that way. Michael in downtown Los Angeles, share with us your favorites when it comes to classic movie houses. I just want to give credit to the people who dug the well. The Vagabond on Wilshire. Yes, I remember the Vagabond. Yeah, and and the Encore on Melrose right across from Paramount is sadly now a uh, parking garage for Raleigh Studios. Yeah. They started it. God bless them. That's oh, all. And Michael. Thank you, Larry. Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yes, The Vagabond, I saw a couple films there when it was open, and um, I can't recall if that's a live performance space now, what they're doing with that space, but that was that was a terrific theater. And I remember driving by the Encore. I don't think I ever actually saw something there. 866-893-5722. Jeffrey in Beverly Hills, classic theater that uh, is one of your favorites. Yes, the Chinese theater, uh, when it um, celebrates its past, in 1983, on the 50th anniversary of King Kong, there was a giant robotic bust of Kong in the foyer, and you could pose in his hand and be photographed. And I did so, uh, coming with my suit and tie from a day of teaching, and (laughs) mugged my uh, terror as I uh, was... um, thus posed. Faye Ray was present, and she reminisced about the making of the film with great fondness. So that's when tradition is truly celebrated at such a venue. Oh, Jeffrey, it's great. Always enjoy hearing uh, your wonderful anecdotes. Did you show that photo um, to your students? I don't think I showed it to the students, but I've showed it to my relatives and yeah. friends. That's great. Jeffrey, always good to hear from you in Beverly Hills. Uh, our uh, Air Talk producer, Manny Valladara, says, I got to say, most of these theaters rock. Been so hyped to go to screenings at the Egyptian since it reopened. It's now owned by Netflix. Um, but Vidiots, I have to give a major shout out, Manny says, because local cinephiles know how major it is to have a place to watch classic classic movies without needing to drive to L.A.'s West Side. I saw King of Comedy there with a packed house. Manny, thank you so much. 
Um, Lindsay, our air talk producer, said I was at a bar with my significant other in El Segundo. We stumbled upon the Old Town Music Hall. Workers were selling concessions outside, and after starting up a conversation with them, they told us breakfast at Tiffany's was just about to start. We spontaneously got popcorn and tickets, went in such a cool theater. They played an old-time cartoon beforehand and introduced the film with some fun facts. Yeah, uh, since 1921, the Old Town Music Call, which is a great venue in the South Bay neighborhood. 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So you're compiling a, a list, Victoria, of these theaters that you're going to be highlighting in the series? Yeah, so I already have a list. We have a list of about eight or nine that we have on the books, um, and I'd love to keep going. I don't know how long I will get to just keep chasing theaters and chasing stories, but I... I'm having a great time. Well, and what's great is I'm sure each theater has a very unique story. They may be in a similar business, but the challenges of rehabbing the building or determining which movies you're going to highlight in your schedule, how you're going to deal with the traffic and parking issues within the neighborhood that, you you know, all of these kinds Mm of, you know, nuts and bolts, the logistics of running a theater, which are complex in this city. Yes, they are. I was just at the Gardena Cinema also in the South Bay, um, and the owner was telling me a story. She had to fight for five years to get the parking lot that they have, and they are the only revival house I've been to that has on-site parking so far. Um, and she was telling me how they were almost turned into a shrimp refrigeration. And and hers was a family operation, hers was wasn't it? was a family it? operation. Isn't she second generation to run that theater? She is. Um, her mother passed in 2022. Her brother moved, and her father hasn't been well, so she's been running it herself. Judy Kim has been running that space herself since 2023. And she now has a team of 40 volunteers who she can send a message out to and people will show up. They are so excited to keep that cinema going. Um, And when I was there, they said, we'll be your kids, Judy. If you need someone to pass it on to, pass it on to us. I love that. So 40 people that she can call on to help her business keep going. Catherine in Monterey Hills emailed the Vista in Silver Lake, which apparently Quentin Tarantino rescued as well. So grateful to him. Uh, yeah, Catherine, uh, so glad to hear about that. And at the New Beverly, the films are all shown on film there, aren't they? I mean, that which makes that uh, pretty much one of a kind. Oh, yeah. The Vista is now also only on film. That's Tarantino's thing. Um, And it does make it a really special experience. I just saw Bonnie and Clyde over at the New Bev and Cabaret over at the Vista. And there's something about the grain on those prints that you just can't. You can't imitate. Even the scratches of some I of the old prints. Know. It just lends authenticity. Shirley in Palace Verdes emailed, Larry, I want to give a shout out to ethnic movie theaters, especially the extinct Toho La Brea, which in the 60s screened Japanese movies on La Brea near Olympic. I hope you do a segment one day on such movie theaters. Surely that is a terrific idea. I remember the Toho very well because uh, growing up in that community, I used to drive by the Toho as a kid all the time. Marion Porter Ranch uh, says, when there's a film I want to support, I'll bring my family, including teens and their friends, to Lemley and other independent theaters. Sometimes I'll pay for kids to go with their friends if they'd rather not go with their their parents. Uh, Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate all of this. Victoria Alejandro 
is the producer of the How to L.A. podcast and series Revival House. Thank you so much, Victoria, for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. It's available at LAS.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Your blood comes from dukes and great houses. We don't have that here. Here, we're equal. Men and women alike. What we do, we do for the benefit of all. Well, I'd very much like to be equal to you. Maybe I'll show you the way. Dune Part 2, starring Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya with that great score from Hans Zimmer. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with the director and co-screenwriter of Dune 2, who also directed the multi-Oscar winning Part 1, Denis Villeneuve. Thank you so much, Denis, for joining us today on Air Talk. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And Dune fans know that Greenlighting, the second film, only came after Warner saw how the first one did, Knowing how good the first part was, did you have any doubts that the audience would embrace it in the way they did? Well, um, I, I, listen, uh, uh, each uh, movie is an act of fate, and 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 uh, you would never know how the audience will react. I mean, it's like uh, I was uh, really relieved to see that the the people embrace uh, uh, our, uh, the way the, the adaptation. When when you finished with part one and you're contemplating what you're going to do in part two, what were the things that stood out from from part one that you felt like, I can expand on this, I can do this bigger? What were the things you particularly wanted to bring to part two? But the most important thing is that was to be faithful to Frank Herbert's initial desire that uh, that to make sure that the movie would be perceived as a cautionary tale, as a warning against messianic figures. When the first book was released, Herbert, uh, uh, I read that Herbert had been disappointed by the way people perceived the, the book, uh, because some some people thought it was a celebration of Paul Atreides, as uh, Herbert wanted to do the right, the opposite. He wanted the, the, it to be like a condemnation. He wanted to, to be the cautionary tale against messianic figures. So in order to correct that, he, he wrote, uh, uh, a tiny book called Dune Messiah that uh, uh, is like a, kind of almost like an epilogue of the, of the first book uh, to correct the perception of Paul Atreides and, and to make sure that people understood that he was an anti-hero and uh, a dark figure. He became, through the story of part of the Dune, uh, a, a dark figure. And 
uh, knowing that I made sure that my adaptation will uh, reflect that this uh, um, this initial intention. So I will say that my June part two, uh, my main objective, my main goal was to be faithful to Frank Herbert more than to the book. And that's interesting. So it sounds like you took that that epilogue, so to speak, that additional book that he wrote to explain what Paul Atreides represented, and then put that in, into his original story. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, uh, I tried to to be uh, uh, as close as possible to his initial intentions. And in order to do so, I I, I, I uh, took one of the characters that was in the, in, the, in the second part of the book that goes more in the background, uh, uh, Shani, uh, and I, I brought it uh, uh, up, uh, up front to become one of the main protagonists with Shani, uh, Shani gives me allows me to have a perspective, a new perspective on Paul, and and uh, that is uh, crucial to the success of this adaptation. So her skepticism about him, even as she's attracted to him, is 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 central to the audience's perception of Paul as well. It sounds like absolutely. And and let's talk about the the um, the theology, so to speak, that is in this world of of Dune. What were some of the challenges of adapting the book to the two parts of your film and and really explaining the principles, the tenets of this theology? But the thing is that uh, you're talking about the the, the way Fremen embrace nature and their perception, uh, their re- sacred relationship uh, uh, with their ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly part of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 something that uh, in the in the it's one of the things that I fell in love with when I was a kid is the idea that uh, to uh, explore this culture that they, uh, uh, takes all its roots into uh, their environment and the, being the product of 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 the desert, being people that uh, uh, sculpt their culture, their uh, religious beliefs, their technology, uh, all of course uh, being in reaction uh, uh, to the arch the 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 harshness of their environment around them. Uh, and uh, uh, it's something that I quite, quite, I thought was pretty inspiring. And uh, I loved also uh, the way, uh, not love, but I thought it was very inspiring uh, to see uh, uh, the exploration of the alienation of religion when people lose uh, their free will and, and, and uh, are uh, uh, subjugated to believe that are not their beliefs, but the beliefs that have been implanted by colonizers and, and in order to control them. And I thought that was very meaningful and, and, and uh, ideas that uh, were uh, worth of exploring in the movie. And then you've also got the theology of the mystical, mystical organization led by women, Lady Jessica, um, played by Rebecca Ferguson, an example of this. And, and there are complexities there that you have to explain to the audience as well. How challenging is that to sort of reveal step by step these um, these long held beliefs that come to the fore in highly mystical supernatural ways? Yeah, it's it's uh, the thing is that what is interesting is just to see the impact of, of those beliefs on populations and how uh, uh, it's the movie is not about uh, it's not at all a condemnation of religion. It's not at all not that at all. It's it's more specifically a cautionary tale about how dangerous it is to use religion as a political tool. And uh, uh, it's something that is embedded in the book, and I try to be as faithful uh, as possible uh, to the book about that topic. And and uh, the, uh, 
to make my adaptation. Uh, one of the things that is specific to, to the both movies I've made is that they are like uh, uh, focused on the Bene Gesserit uh, uh, sisterhood that is uh, the, 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 the epicenter of, the, of the, uh, this uh, use of religion as, as, as a, a tool of power. We're talking with filmmaker and screenwriter Denis Villeneuve, whose Dune Part 2 opens Friday at theaters all over, available in IMAX as well as as standard uh, screening, um, an extraordinary visual film. And I, I was so impressed with the effects again, which seemed they even surpassed what you were able to show with Part 1. What were some of the breakthroughs you achieved with Part 2? But the thing is that, uh, of course, uh, bringing this mostly the same crew uh, uh, from the first movie, I use uh, mostly the same artist, and, and people knew uh, uh, aesthetically what I wanted to do. They they, uh, they knew the vocabulary of the movie. They, we had the, the mostly designed uh, part two as we were doing part one, and there's a lot of software for visual effects that had been uh, uh, developed for part one that uh, we had. Uh, a toolbox that was quite uh, already uh, uh, ready for for part two, and of course there was more uh, development in the technology uh, uh, required to to achieve what we needed to do for part two. But let's say that we knew the basic, we knew where we were stepping in. Uh, uh, part two is a much more uh, uh, technically a challenge that is a, a much more of a bigger challenge. Uh, it was like a, a by far the most complex movie I have ever made. But still, I was work, working with people that had the, the right tools to do it. And the, of course, the, the necessary talent. I, I, I was surrounded by a fantastic crew. And this from the man who also directed Blade Runner 2049. So you know complex visual films and what's required to, to convey that on screen. And I wonder, what have you learned along the way as a director working on these visually intense films? Like, do you feel like with each one of these that your, your mastery of it gets greater? I think that the beauty of uh, anyone in any field, if you're a, uh, either a dentist or, or a, a school teacher, or uh, I mean, you 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 feel as you uh, you go on and as you you age and as you you uh, practice your your craft or your your uh, your work uh, that you you get better at it, and that's what makes you go back and 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 evolve. And it's the same for a filmmaker, and it's like. A, I feel that I'm getting better uh, at each movie. I'm, of course, I'm talking about my own limits. I'm talking about my own. Uh, uh, I don't compare myself to others, uh, of course. Otherwise, I would go back home and never dare touch a camera again. But if if looking at my own path as as an artist, as a filmmaker, I I I feel that I, I'm I'm learning and learning and learning, and that's what's pushed me forward. The will to try to do better as a uh, to try to do a better movie each time. One of the things I think you do so well is you give a sense of place, which is very challenging for some directors in in these highly um, effects-laden scenes because so much of it is about um, the grandeur of, of the visual that then the audience can lose its place as to where physically in the action unfolding we actually are with the characters. It's something you're very, very gifted at and um, beautifully on display in Dune Part 2, opening Friday. We're talking with the director and screenwriter of Dune Part 2, Denis Villeneuve. We'll continue our conversation with him on Air Talk in just one minute.
Muad'Dib. The prophet? The one who points the way. These are our own religious patterns, aren't they? This is our doing. Muad'Dib means kangaroo mouse. An unusual warning for a Fremen. What if Polytreides were still alive? Enough! This must not come out. Even to your father's ears, understand? I do, Reverend Mother. Charlotte Rampling returning in Dune Part 2. Florence Pugh joining the cast for Part 2 of the series. We're talking with Dune Part 2's director and co-screenwriter, Denis Villeneuve. Let's talk about the growth of Timothy Chalamet because you see him grow you know, as a young man from part one to part two, working with him as an actor, the character, of course, sustaining incredible loss and changing as well, becoming a more complex character in part two from part one. Working with Timothy as he himself is getting older as, as a man in the world, how did that factor into your relationship as you directed him to bring this this character's growth and and changing complexity into part two? But the thing, first of all, I'm, I need to say that it was, it's the first time that I have the chance to work with an actor that is growing in front of the camera, that is learning his craft, that is uh, 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 getting more and more mature, more, more and more assured. And it was really moving for me to see that happening and, uh, and on part one. Uh, Timothy came on, on set, he was 23 uh, years old, surrounded by uh, 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 grown-ups that had gray hair. <laughs> he was like a, a, alone in his bubble. He was like trying to find his way to try to... Uh, he did that gracefully. He learned quite quickly, but still he was. I felt he was like a, 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 a consolidating his identity and, and trying to... Uh, find a way to protect his focus, his concentration on set. He was, he was learning to find its way in a, in a production of that scale, which is absolutely normal. And, and, and I tried to, to protect him as much as I could and uh, help him. And, he, and I felt that when he came on part two, uh, he was like uh, 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 much more uh, mature. He was a leading man. He, he was like uh, someone that uh, was there being the, the, the main character was, uh, I felt, uh, a leader for, for the others. And I, I really uh, loved to see that progression in him. And uh, he learned a lot from part one, but also from the subsequent movie he did between both films. And and uh, it was very moving for him, for me to see him uh, getting more assured, grounded, finding his roots and, and mastering the, the art of performing in a movie of that scale. Well, it sounds like even how he carried himself on set had changed between the two films as well, not just on screen. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a normal evolution, I guess. But it's a, it's a, uh, it's it was nice to see that, and it it went also. It was it was like mirroring what was happening with his character in part one. The Paula 3Ds is a is a old teenager that uh, a victim of the event. He has no power at all. He's, he just tried to survive uh, the events that uh, are imposed to him by by other people' uh, uh, actions. In part two, he becomes a man, falls in love, become a fighter, become a guerrilla fighter, and then become a leader. And it's it's like a, it embodied that 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 character that uh, take uh, control over his destiny. And it was uh, quite beautiful to see that mirroring the way he he, he behaved on set. We're talking with Denis Villeneuve, who is the director and co-screenwriter of Dune Part 2, opening Friday uh, in wide release. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica goes through an incredible ordeal in Part 2. What was it like to work with her on those scenes and to prepare her for 
all that her character physically endures in part two. Now, uh, Rebecca Ferguson is, is a fantastic actress. She's an, uh, uh, there's, uh, it's uh, someone that has a tremendous, uh, um, uh, it's uh, someone that has a beautiful imagination and, and, uh, and that can uh, really uh, make you believe in, in, the, in the forces, or esoteric forces or, or, or a world that don't, don't exist. And it's like, uh, I, I absolutely adore working with her and she's a force and, and uh, she, she's someone I can always rely on to, to bring uh, the necessary intensity on screen. And uh, I, uh, it was like uh, very playful to work with her and to go in those crazy zones of the psyche where she has to uh, make us believe that uh, uh, she's going through the process of becoming a reverend mother. Uh, and what does it mean? And what is the psychological impact of that? And, and it was like quite mesmerizing for me to see her uh, succeeding uh, uh, into doing this in front of performing that in front of the camera it's it's very it was a fantastic laboratory to work with Rebecca what does it require of you as a director when you're working with a highly complex long period of shooting big budget film like this and you're trying to keep everybody up and you know some of these days I'm sure very long and in this physically grueling work in many places what does that call on you as the leader of the production as the director to to imbue to the crew and to the cast to keep everybody pointed in the right direction even on days that are tough man it's my job <laughs> it's I'm paid for that <laughs> to 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 inspire people and to uh, uh, show show them in which direction we need to to go and, and and to make sure that we arrive there and that we land at the right place and it's like it's my uh, it's my job and and but I will say that I don't do that alone. I tremendous help for many people. One of them being my my wife producer Tanya Lapointe that uh, made sure to give me the all the surround me with with uh, everything that I needed uh, or, or of course uh, uh, married parent that uh, as uh, the head of uh, legendary that all those those forces were around me to help me to bring my vision to the screen I don't do that alone there's a lot of people working around me uh, and uh, it would be unfair to say that I'm alone pushing the the in the right direction but uh, yeah I need to inspire those, those all those people that's uh, what is a director is someone that uh, showed away yeah and I just want to close by um, acknowledging you're you're one of 30 some directors who purchased the historic village theater in Westwood so that it can show a combination of first run and classic films as well in in uh, prime resolution and uh, money's being invested in the theater uh, just share with us your thoughts about your your willingness to join with that group of prominent directors to buy the theater Pure joy. I mean, it's like that was an invitation from Jason Reitman. He is the one who is, was responsible, who got the idea that I saw that the theater was uh, about to be sold and went into action and 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 uh, called a bunch of friends and and uh, and brought us all together. And for me, that's that's. Uh, <clears throat> I'm very excited about this idea. First of all, I I uh, I'm talking about in theater experience and I'm trying to push for that. Uh, and uh, since years and to to have the chance to go uh, at the front and, and to to be part of a group that will share movies directly with the audience uh, through this theater is uh, tremendously exciting. 
and and to be part of that community to be part of that group of filmmaker as as filmmaker we are lonely wolves and and uh, i found a friendly pack and i i'm, I'm craving for a community and all these directors i'm a, i'm a big big fan of their work and it's an honor for me to be part of that group but i'm very very excited by this idea and i'm so grateful that jason uh, thought of me to join the, the group Denis Villeneuve, thank you so much for joining us, talking about Dune 2 opening Friday. Congratulations on on uh, the second terrific um, Dune film. Are you going to do a third? Uh, is is that likely to happen? The, the, the chances that the third one happened are very high. Let's say that I'm writing this. Uh, we are working on the screenplay right now. I've been quite busy uh, finishing part two. And uh, once the, the all the promotion of part two will be done, I'll have more time to go back uh, uh, on the keyboard to to uh, to uh, finish the screenplay. It will take a while because those adaptations are not, are not easy to do. But uh, still, uh, I'm uh, really uh, we are inspired, and uh, and uh, it will make absolute sense for me to 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 do a, a third and last movie to conclude the the, the story of Paul Atreides. Denis, we'll look forward to it. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure to talk to you. Take care. And that continues our all-entertainment edition of Air Talk today. Coming up next hour, AI and adult entertainment. Also want to remind you to join us this coming Sunday at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles, our 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview with all of our critics on stage. It's going to be a great afternoon, so much fun. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. Coming up later this hour on this all entertainment focused edition of Air Talk. It's TV Talk. We bring you critics every Thursday to talk about the best of streaming and network television. I'll be joined uh, later this hour by Danette Chavez of Primetimer and Melanie McFarland of Salon. They'll tell us about Shogun, a series that's gotten a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, it's adapted from the James uh, Clavel book, uh, the novel that was so big decades ago. We'll also hear about season two of Extraordinary. That's the British comedic action series. Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix and we'll hear about the second best hospital in the galaxy starring Kieran Culkin and Stephanie Hsu. That's an Amazon Prime video streaming series. We've also got The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live. 
So a lot of TV to talk about later this hour. But we begin talking about adult entertainment and the effect of artificial uh, technology, uh, artificial intelligence and that technology on sexually explicit material. As I said at the opening of the hour, cutting-edge technology has been associated with sexually explicit entertainment going back to the Nickelodeon and the Peep shows, and we've seen it evolve over the years, of course, with, uh, with uh, films and, and, of course, with the Internet and um, with people doing in uh, home shows that have become so big, only fans, of course, that's come to the fore. But the question is, Will artificial intelligence open up new ways uh, of people who work in this industry making money, or will it instead do economic harm to those that are doing the work? Joining us is Tatum Hunter, consumer technology reporter for The Washington Post, who did a terrific in-depth look at this and talked with stakeholders throughout the industry. Tatum, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, let's talk, first of all, about to what extent has AI made its way into the world of porn? AI is still in the early stages of infiltrating the adult industry, just like other industries. Um, But that doesn't mean it's not there. Already, adult performers are using chatbots to uh, field messages from fans and solicit tips. Some of them um, even spin up fake voice notes and images um, to, you know, give fans the the photos that they might request. And uh, also, you know, there's image generators like the one I discuss in the story, um, where users at home can prompt AI image generators to create the nude images that interest them. Now we see uh, with OpenAI's Sora coming out, the potential for video. Um, and as you know, Steve Jones, the owner of Porn.ai, said video will ultimately be porn's holy grail. And what are some of the ethical concerns about this? Because you might have performers who would be glad to be able to have their images used in different ways if they can profit from it, but there might be certain acts that they wouldn't they wouldn't want themselves to be shown in that light. To what extent are they going to be able to control those images? Right now, adult performers have very little control. Many of them have signed really broad model releases during their past work that allow studios or companies to recreate their images in any medium for the rest of time. Um, you know, and in other industries that might not fly, but because there's, you know, not as much oversight, um, you know, mainstream, the mainstream world has kind of has kind of pushed the adult industry into a corner. And now, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly how AI is unfolding legally. Um, but I, it, and, and then the other thing to consider is that these image generators were trained on pornographic images that the subjects may not have consented to this new use. So whether it's financial concerns, legal concerns, or concerns about abuse, there's a few different buckets, you know, that people are worried about. And is anyone talking about regulating or legislating this space? 
There are talks of giving more protections to the adult victims of AI deepfakes at the federal level. We saw after you know um, new deepfakes of the singer Taylor Swift circulated online a few weeks ago that it was really a flashpoint where people said, "How how you know how can people protect themselves or how can people bite back legally when this happens?" There's also cases in court right now where artists, photographers, designers, newspapers have have sued AI companies saying, "Hey." You took this content and you used it to train these models. The AI companies say that that falls under copyright fair use. They're making an artistic product, um, but you know the owners of this copyrighted material tend to disagree. So that that would really change the game for people who are spinning up these bespoke AI image generators. We're talking with consumer technology reporter for the Washington Post, Tatum Honor, and I, I strongly recommend her very in-depth piece that looks at uh, artificial intelligence and its use in adult entertainment. Also with us is performer Lexi Luna. Lexi, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Tatum just mentioned chatbots, and that's something you're developing at this point? I'm working with a company currently to give my fans a different entry point. Not everybody can either afford or has the ability to subscribe to an OnlyFans, but they still want that interaction. They still want to see their favorite star talk to them in some capacity. So I'm working to give my fans an additional piece of Lexi Luna that they might not have access to in an in any other way. And how does the AI get trained? Does it take recordings of your voice and any vocal mannerisms or the timbre of your voice and then um, uh, come up with a duplication of it? How does it work? The way that we've been focusing the AI training has been basically getting information from the things that I've already have out on the internet. Podcasts, interviews, those types of things are really great for inflections, the way I speak, making it sound natural. And then there's also a few paragraphs that they had me read in different tones and different um, inflections as well. And that has kind of put it all together. And the technology is really amazing. And so it, it truly does sound like me. And it is trained on topics that I would talk about and the way that I would talk about them. Does that kind of freak you out to hear yourself, <laughs> hear it sound like you, but not being what you said in the same way? Absolutely. But it's also amazing. I think adult performers are embracing this and we're not afraid of this new technology that's coming our way. So it's very exciting to be on the cutting edge of something like this. What if what if you had uh, one of your fans that, that wanted you to say something that you'd be strongly against that might be hate speech or something like that? Are there any sorts of filters to keep um, your bot from doing that? Yes, and that's the piece where when you're working with a company that is ethical, you know, that they build that in and that can't really say the same for potential things that come up, you know, grassroots style for these different chatbots. But working with reputable companies, you're they're They're definitely taking care of that. So are you concerned that there could be some um, disreputable company that would offer you offer um, this airsoft's you um, in ways that you wouldn't uh, approve of and making money essentially on on your vocal image? Absolutely. The company that came to me, actually, their pitch was kind of harsh at first. They were like, we can do this with or without you. And, wow. they're, and they're right, because I have hundreds, thousands probably of videos and images and 
text and all these different things out on the internet that anybody can have access to. If you go to any adult website, I'm probably featured pretty prominently. So you can just grab all of that information and that's the scary part of it. But, you know, they say it in that shock factor way to kind of jar you and to make you think like, oh, okay, maybe I should be part of this and I'd rather... I'd rather be part of it and make money on it myself than to allow somebody else to, you know, make it that in a way that's bigger than me. Because I, if I promote this to my fans, then that's already giving it the the backing that it is truly me and it's what I want the fans to have. Lexi, in the productions that you've done, I don't know whether you control all your content or whether you've worked for other producers, but did you sign releases that enable your image from any of those productions to be used in other ways? Absolutely. It's the standard model release. We can use this in perpetuity in the universe forever. And that's literally what it says in the, in the contract. So it's, you know, it, it's part of the gig. And we all know that we're signing away rights to our image for that scene and potentially for other promo materials. And it says in the contract that they can, you know, cut this up and use it in any way that they want and change the, the order of it, change the manner of it. And so you just have to prepare yourself yeah. for things that may be out there that, that you don't approve of. Uh, I know it's not a unionized industry, but is this something that any of the performers have come together to talk about ways of coming up with greater protections for performers? There really is nothing we can do. And aside from legislation, but, you know, when you think about it, that really only applies to the U.S. There's no global agreement, shall we say. And this is a global industry. Exactly. All right. We're talking with Lexi Luna, adult entertainment performer. And I'd love to hear your questions about AI and adult entertainment. We're at 866-893-5722. You can also email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And today we're on the brand new website as we've merged with las.com. You'll see our AirTalk page. And a new feature we offer is a box where you can include your feedback feedback to the program, whether it's your question or your comment, comes right to us. So please submit that at las.com slash airtalk. You can submit your question or your comment through that method as well. I'd also be interested to hear from any other adult performers that are listening, how you're navigating uh, AI. Maybe you're a producer, maybe you're a content creator, a performer. I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this and ways you're thinking of either monetizing the technology on your behalf or ways of trying to protect yourself from uses that you feel would be unethical. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. With us as well is Steve Lightspeed, the CEO of Porn AI. Steve, thank you for joining us. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. So how is your company as a startup uh, using this technology? Uh, well, we are on the image generation side right now. We are also moving, uh, as Tatum said, into uh, AI video as quickly as possible. And, and what are some of the ways that you're you're using these images? Are, are you paying to license it? Are you treating it as fair use without compensation? How are you doing that? Well, I, I heard uh, Lexi say that they, her company told her they could do it with her or without her. That should have been a huge red flag. We would never 
threaten somebody like that. I, I think that um, adult performers have every right to their name and their likeness and their voices, and nobody should be allowed to use them. In that, in that way, we actually don't use any real people in our, on our sites. It's, it's all imaginary people. And and the imaginary people aren't even suggested by real people. They're 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 so uh, are they are they just um, composites that have so many different elements you couldn't trace it to a person or or is there not uh, real people source material that goes into the composite? Well, the way AI works, the way it's trained is there's excuse me, <clears throat> there's um, sample images, uh, stable diffusion and mid journey and and open AI. Uh, basically used about 6 billion images to train their foundation models. And there's a big misunderstanding about how it works. It doesn't, it's not a composite. It's not taking an actual piece of a photo and pasting it into a new photo. What AI does is it's, it's doing math. It's looking for patterns and textures and colors and uh, that sort of stuff. So it, it learns through looking at many, many examples what a nose looks like and where a nose is in relation to eyes and where eyes are in relation to a head, that sort of thing. So um, by averaging it out using text prompts, you can get literally trillions of combinations of, of images um, that don't resemble any particular person. In Tatum's article for the Washington Post, there's some examples of, of the AI images, and there's a kind of a sheen to them. They don't look fully natural. And is that just because that's where the technology is at, at, at that point, or is, is it, has it gone beyond that? Well, there's all sorts of different AI models, uh, styles. Uh, we currently use 20 different styles, and I think the, the sample that got shown in the article was one of the styles that's a little, a little less advanced than the others. Um, we are working on photorealism. The, the ultimate goal is that you, you won't be able to tell if you're looking at a photo or a computer-generated image. And is this the same audience, do you think, as, as someone who would um, you know, go to um, a live stream that Lexi does, for example, and wants to see human her? Is the person who's going to be interested in an AI-generated image not based on a particular person, is that, is that the same customer? No, I, I really don't think so. Um, I've said all along that, that AI doesn't have the human heart or compassion that a performer has, and there's, there's only so much that it can do. But there are things that AI can do that a performer can't do, like be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, be willing to do, um, you know, hey, I, I want you, I wish you were 60 pounds heavier, or I wish you had brown hair right now. That's stuff that a performer can't do. Uh, same thing, I, I want you to dress up in a $50,000, you know, uh, ball gown and wear a million dollars worth of diamonds. That's you're not going to find a performer that can do that, but you can do all of that with AI. 
We're talking with Steve Lightspeed. He's the CEO of Porn AI. We're talking with him about his startup company using AI for adult entertainment. Tatum Hunter, consumer technology reporter for The Washington Post with a really terrific piece laying out uh, many different ways in which AI poses challenges to but also financial opportunities within adult entertainment. And Lexi Luna, adult entertainment performer, talking about the ways that she's moving into that space of AI with her business and talking about what it means for her fans. We're at 866-893-5722. I'd be interested in hearing from you if you have ever used AI with sexually explicit entertainment, reasons you would seek that out, what you think about it, if it disappointed or you found it was something that uh, was of interest to you. And again, if you're someone who works in the industry, your thoughts about how AI intersects with sexually explicit entertainment. Entertainment. You're listening to Air Talk on LA at 89.3. We'll be back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us as we talk about adult entertainment and AI, what the future is bringing. There have been so many emerging technologies throughout multiple generations of adult entertainment that have had a huge impact on it. Of course, uh, the video cassette recorder and player in the home, which changed everything. We went from having specific adult theaters in major American cities to those going out of business in pretty short order because people could watch VHS tapes in their home with their favorite performers. And then, of course, the Internet, which changed it yet again. The rise of Pornhub and other uh, free sites like that supported with advertising. And artificial intelligence now, its impact on the industry. I'd be interested in hearing from you if you you are a porn performer, if you're someone who creates adult-oriented content, if you're someone who is a consumer of adult content, your thoughts about AI and what opportunities that it presents. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Tatum Hunter is consumer technology reporter for The Washington Post. A few years ago, we did a segment on VR and porn because that was really really touted as being a totally immersive experience. So it's as though you yourself were participating in the scene with the performer. Tatum, did VR take off much in porn? VR definitely has a presence in porn. When I was at the AVN conference, which is the adult industry's annual trade show, um, you know, there were booths dedicated entirely to VR porn. But like Steve pointed out, there can always be audience segments in this market, just like any market. Um, you know, I talked to folks there who make their entire careers directing and producing VR porn. But as we've seen, it hasn't eclipsed or wiped out um, other ways of, of consuming the content. As, as you talked with people in this industry, Tatum, who would you say is, is the most concerned about the impact of AI? I'd say that performers are most concerned about the impact because they are the ones who have the most to gain or lose. And by that, I mean, just like in, in other uh, industries and other tech verticals, we see how um, the creator economy has 
huge gains to be had, but is also very unequally distributed. You know, the people at the top are much better protected, you know, by these laws around copyright, fair use, um, uh, you know, consent than the people who are individual contributors. Um, so I think that I think that this is a labor issue, um, just like in any other industry. Let's talk with Carl in Mar Vista. Carl, good to have you with us. Uh, have you been a consumer of AI porn? Uh, yes, Carl Vitali over in Mar Vista. I've been con- a consumer of AI porn for the past year-ish, and I use it because I I feel like it is. Um, I don't. I, I said harm free, but I feel like it's harm. I don't want to say harmless, but it's uh, the the performer. I know the performer isn't being harmed because the performer isn't uh, real. I guess. Yeah, and does does it at all take away from um, the excitement of the scene if you knowing that it's AI generated versus a human? who um, is, is doing whatever the act is in the moment, does, does that have an, any sort of negative effect on you as a viewer? I, I work in production, so I always think about the, the really, the, the, the production of it all the time. So I, I, I'm able to go in and out. I think that's just me, but I feel like uh, it, maybe it can for some people, um, but to know that the actor is, safe and crew isn't in harm's way like i like i know i know it 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 takes away a lot of a lot of stuff financially but i i feel like as a good alternate like it does it feels a little greener yeah yeah carl i i i hear what you're saying it's it's so interesting lexi luna your thoughts about what he's saying so i would like to mention that um the productions that you're seeing, companies like Browsers, Reality Kings, uh, Adult Time, etc., those performers are consenting safe and the crews are protected and there is no harm being done. So getting that part cleared up, there is no actual harm that it, the AI is preventing the, a performer from having. So ultimately, I really... I like the idea of watching AI because for me personally, I know all the people in the videos. So if I want to escape and have a fantasy, then consuming that type of of content is really kind of the only way that I can it's so not so it's see a my colleague experience. Yeah. 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 So and to, to to that end, it's uh, it's very interesting and and I would definitely be interested in in using AI as well. That's fascinating. Carl, thanks so much for your call. We're at 866-893-5722. Fred in Woodland Hill says, I was wondering if the guest could touch on the social implications of artificial intelligence moving into pornography. I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. If you mean um, uh, uh, you don't have the same sort of human interaction in the production of it. Tatum Hunter, do you have an idea what he might mean by that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that they're, um, you know, just like when any new AI product comes out, our minds jump pretty quickly to like science fiction narratives. Like, I can't tell you how many people have mentioned, you know, the movie Her to me, where, you know, a guy falls in love with his AI voice assistant um, to to um, 
semi-disastrous ends. Uh, so I think there is a lot of anxiety about what does this mean for our human relationships, but I don't know if that, you know, anxiety is well-placed. Well, and and the other thing is that, you know, Lexi, you can have fans, for example, get very attached to you, I'm Absolutely. sure. And so in their minds, you know, you're their girlfriend or, you know, and, and so you probably get feedback from a fantasy basis of people who whether real in their minds or not, are communicating that. Absolutely. And, you know, the social piece, I think, is also when we don't interact with actual humans, we suffer. You know, that's why I'm not really worried about artificial intelligence, because it just can't replicate human sexuality, which is very complex. And that so you might as well own it, make it as good as you can. It's here. More is coming. Embrace it. Um, and then socially, you know, I think we're seeing that a lot in younger generations where they're so glued to their devices and they're not interacting with each other in a human space. Now, there are Nina Hartleys who never seem to retire and continue just to be Bless a force her. of nature. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the great Nina Hartley. But um, most retire after a given period of sure. years and move on to other careers. Um is that something you're thinking about if you decide to leave the business that that uh, obviously videos would be out there, photos would be out there anyway, but AI of you could be outlive you by generations? I've definitely thought that thought, you know, the, the legacy lives on in a sense. And I I think that that's actually pretty cool, you know, to be able to exist forever and to to never really leave the fans and, you know, potentially gaining more fans and all of that kind of thing for people who have never, who will never see me. Uh, we have Elle in San Diego who emailed, I'm a fan of Lexi. I've also tried out AI as a consumer out of curiosity. I think there's room in the industry for this technology, but I think it'll ultimately be used as a supplemental product, not one that'll replace performers. I think the most important thing is for performers like Lexi to have the choice to use AI if they want to and also monetize it for themselves. That's L from San Diego. Thank you for being a fan, L. All right. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Steve Lightspeed, CEO of Porn.ai. Where are you on on moving from still images um, to actual video AI? Uh, well, right now we are um, still in the labs. Uh, everyone has just seen uh, OpenAI's release of uh, Sora, which is fantastic text straight to video. Um, it's probably still uh, maybe a year away, two years away for, for adult. I don't think OpenAI is going to make that technology available to uh, porn production companies any too quickly. But the genie's out of the bottle. It, it's coming. Whenever uh, AI and porn are discussed uh, together, it's the concern about images of, of children or, or highly violent images that could be created. What, if any, safeguards are there against the creation of those images? Yeah, I, I actually spent quite a bit of time working with uh, other companies in the industry, the, the billing companies. Um, we have a, we have, our attitude is that we want to be responsible with this. Um, children protection is first and foremost. We, we've done a month's worth of work to make sure that no one can generate those kind of images on our sites. 
Um, we block any kind of words like Lolita or child or toddler. Um, we also block um, celebrity names. Taylor Swift could not have been created on our site. How do you see AI porn affecting all the thousands of people, uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands, who are creating content for OnlyFans subscribers? Well, I I have to disagree with what Lexi said, that all the performers are perfectly safe. Um, Maybe in her circle that is true. I I know she works with reputable companies. But their porn world is a, a very large group of people and there's there's performers all over the world who are not necessarily treated as well as Lexi has been um, I think that one of the things we we our goal is to make porn production safer like your listener said he feels like he's not contributing to harming a porn star um, I think that that's something for that a lot of my our users are are interested in. They can indulge their fantasies without the guilt and also without the fear of rejection. Uh, Some of the people have talked about that they've tried going on a live cam or talk to an OnlyFans girl and they just feel awkward and they know that she's not really into them and that, you know, fantasy wise, she's not using her real name. She's not using her real backstory and she won't probably remember the guy because they're talking to hundreds, potentially thousands of people. A lot of OnlyFans girls actually don't do their own chatting. They, they outsource it to factories in the Philippines. Um, so with AI, the guy said, I would rather pay an AI. I know that it's not real. I'd rather do that than pay someone to lie to me and pretend to be interested in me. Uh, Lexi Luna, just quick closing comment from you on that. He's absolutely right. There are a lot of performers who outsource that chatting and because ultimately you can only do so much, right? And so I, I definitely see that there is a place for artificial intelligence to coexist in this space. And I think just like anything, there will be people who prefer it and there will be people who prefer actual human connection potential and just our fans and want to see that person do that thing. Lexi Luna joining us, uh, adult entertainment performer. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our thanks to Steve Lightspeed, CEO of Porn.ai and Tatum Hunter, who really brought this to my attention with the terrific piece she did for the Washington Post, consumer technology reporter. I highly recommend her article and you'll see it at las.com slash AirTalk, where we link to the article. It's AirTalk on LAist 89.3 coming up. TV Talk with our critics. A very big week in TV streaming and networks. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAist comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So great to have you with us, and I hope to see you this coming Sunday at 1 o'clock at the beautiful Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. If you haven't been to the Orpheum ever or recently, this is your chance to come down and see the absolutely gorgeous historic movie house where all 11 of our Film Week critics will join me on stage for a very robust conversation on the Oscar categories. This is such a competitive year. So many terrific films, performances, screenplays. We're going to talk about all of that. There'll be plenty to argue over and will see clips, some of the best scenes of the 10 Best Picture nominees. So please join us. Tickets are going fast, but you can still get yours right now at LAist.com slash events. It's the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview with the Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. LAist.com slash events. Let's talk TV with critics Danette Chavez of Primetimer, where she's editor-in-chief, and Melanie McFarland of Salon. We begin with Shogun, which has uh, been recreated from James Clavell's best-selling novel. It's uh, streaming on Hulu and airing on FX Network. Let's start. Uh, Melanie, what do you think of Shogun? This Shogun production is stunning, um, and it's also meticulously rendered in in terms of getting the background together. So what I mean by that is the original Shogun, for um, listeners who remember it, was in um, from James Clavell's 1975 novel. And then we uh, Americans got to see a miniseries on NBC in 1980, um, which featured Richard Chamberlain. And he ended up being the star of a production where, you know, the entire cast besides him was Japanese and it was filmed in Japan. This one takes the perspective of the Japanese people um, and specifically the person who uh, is referred to um, as the, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but Hiroki Sonata is um, the star, the main star. And then you also have Anna Sawai, um, who some people who may have seen Monarch um, on Apple TV Plus may know, um, she's extraordinary as Mariko. Um, so the person who Richard Chamberlain originally uh, portrayed is now portrayed by an actor named Cosmo Jarvis. And the fact that he is kind of not even secondary, but tertiary to the story is actually quite important. You get to see so much from this part of history, from the people who live, you know, from the perspective of the people who lived it. Um, these are fictional characters, but it's mm. again, beautifully rendered. Shogun is streaming on Hulu and airing on FX Networks. Uh, the first two episodes are already out with episode three releasing next Tuesday. There'll be a total of 10 episodes of Shogun. Also on Hulu, Extraordinary with its second season, the British comedy action series, Danette. Yeah, so uh, Emma Morin uh, created this show for Hulu, uh, and it started off as this 
sly commentary on the glut of superhero stories uh, in pop culture. Season one is about how superpowers have become so ordinary that not having one is actually what makes you the exception. Um, as Jen, our, the uh, extraordinarily ordinary main character, Mairead Tires gives a performance that is layered with so much thorniness and vulnerability you want to shake her and hug her at the same time. Uh, and the rest of the cast, which includes Bilal Hasna, is just as game as she is, which, you know, makes, you know, all of the really absurdist uh, uh, twists and turns um, easier to follow, really. Um, season two will also be a binge release, um, and it is supercharged, really. It's funnier, it's darker, and it's more hopeful. Um, what started off as this superhero comedy that was centered around a bunch of Gen Zers in London uh, has become a broader coming of age story about how turning a certain age or achieving a certain milestone doesn't magically unlock adulthood. Um, and, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that you have it together as we see with um, some of the older characters who come to the forefront this season. Extraordinary with season two, all eight episodes to be released next Wednesday, March 6th, rated TVMA on Hulu. Avatar, The Last Airbender on Netflix, uh, Gordon Cormier starring. Uh, it's uh, rated TVPG. Uh, Melanie, tell us please about Avatar, The Last Airbender. So this is a series that has, to call it beloved is to understand uh, things. Um, it's based on an animated series that ran on Nickelodeon uh, between 2005 and 2008. Um, and that animated series was so surprising in that it was made for kids, but people of all ages really connected to it. It's a true um, you know, children's fantasy epic um, that actually has a lot of adult themes in it when it talks about you know, the damage that war um, creates both for the people who wage it and the people who are you know, victimized by it. There's a lot about leadership and you know, it really uh, ended up when it came back in 2020 reflecting um, a lot of what it means to fight authoritarianism. This new series um, is a live action version. There was one done by M. Night Shyamalan about uh, 14 years ago that was not so well received. Um, is actually <laughs> uh, considered to be one of the worst films of all time. This one is not that bad. Um, <laughs> the little to be desired, but it does say some interesting things about leadership. The changes in there um, are some people who are pure, pure purists may not appreciate them, but if you look at them from a slightly different angle, um, some of the changes are great, and I think that it actually could be a, a wonderful series for Netflix if it decides to continue for another season. Avatar, The Last Airbender, eight episodes, all of them now streaming on Netflix. The second best hospital in the galaxy on Amazon Prime Video, starring Kieran Culkin and Stephanie Hsu, Natasha Leone and Kiki Palmer, Maya Rudolph, all in the cast. Quite a cast, Danette. Yes. Um, you know, you mentioned Kiki Palmer and Stephanie Hsu, and they are delightful as the pair of alien doctors who are at the center of the show, who have this longstanding friendship. Um, and, you know, they they have complementary neuroses, if you will. Um, but that friendship is really just kind of like this something for viewers to hold on to because this show gets weird. This, you know, um, <laughs> as animation often does on TV. Yes. Yes. 
Thank you. Um, you know, there are a lot of show animated shows that really try to bring everything back to something more grounded. And, you know, I understand the impulse and there are certainly elements of that here. But Sirocco Dunlap, who worked on Russian Doll uh, with Natasha Leone, um, she and her team really want to, you know, find the most bizarre and wonderful things out in the galaxy. Um, you'll find yourself you know, the, the, the opening scene is this, you know, it, it, it looks like a moment out of ER, but the, all of these life-saving efforts are to rescue a parasite from its human host that dies on the table. And that's considered a success, right? Like that's, that's you know, the, the show subverts your expectations a lot. Um, and what, you know, I really appreciate about it is that it's one of the few animated shows uh, led by women, uh, behind the scenes, well, I guess in every respect, right? No one's really on camera on an animated show. Um, but if you miss Tuke and Birdie or BoJack Horseman or even Ugly Americans, this is the show for you. The second best hospital in the galaxy, all eight episodes streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live, yet another one of The Walking Dead projects, Melanie. I know it seems like this series will never end, and it and it may not ever. Yeah, <laughs> this may not. franchise. I mean, I mean, you know, zombies. You know, technically, if they're not Live in comedy, they can go on forever. Uh, but one thing I've got to say about what um, Scott Gimble, who now is the creative leader of the Walking Dead universe for AMC, I think that there's some realization, especially now. Um, that there has to be something for these characters um, that a lot of people know and root for to live for. Um, they've this is now the I want to say the third spinoff um, post Walking Dead spinoff with the main characters from the, what they call the Mothership. This one features Michonne um, and Rick Grimes, who are kind of the the leaders of their uh, their survivor group. Um, and they were separated. So you have Michonne and Rick Grimes trying to find each other. Um, and I can't, I'm, I'm obligated by AMC not to say exactly what happens, but um, this particular uh, episode that's coming up this week features Michonne. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, um, it's Denai Guerrero, who is in Black Panther. Um, she's kind of the samurai at the end of the world in this series. Um, and if you've seen some um, other shows uh, that may have been a little more prestige considered like um, Station Eleven on HBO. Um, it, there's gonna be some themes of that where you know people find other people, learn to trust them and eventually you know, form these relationships outside of what we are now. Um, so it's really about this idea of love finding itself at the end of the world um, and lots of zombies too. It stars Andrew Lincoln and Denai Guerrera. Uh, the Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live, is on AMC Network, streaming on AMC Plus. Of uh, the six episodes total uh, in the uh, series uh, uh, first season, uh, the first episode is out, second releases on this Sunday, March 3rd. When we come back, we'll talk about the passing of Richard Lewis, such a terrific comedic presence on television, including Curb Your Enthusiasm during its entire run. He died on Tuesday at the age of 76 of a heart attack and great controversy over the Lifetime documentary, Where is Wendy Williams, including a lawsuit from Williams' conservator. We'll be back in just a minute.
It's our TV talk. Every Thursday you hear it here on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle with critics Melanie McFarland of Salon and Danette Chavez, editor-in-chief at Prime Timer. Our next series is The Tourist in its second season on Netflix. All six episodes are premiering today. Uh, Danette, please tell us about The Tourist second season. What do you think? You know, this was the UK's most popular drama uh, back in 2022. Um, And, but the, and it, you know, was available to US viewers uh, on Max. Um, But the culling at Warner Brothers Discovery meant that Max canceled it. Um, Luckily, Netflix swooped in to save it for uh, season two. Um, And it's a move that I think is going to pay off for that streamer because this is exactly the kind of propulsive, twisty series that is meant to be binged um you know and there's another there there are two seasons for people to dig into you know we we keep hearing more and more that like viewers want to live with characters longer right like they they want to sit with them you know and and get to know them um what's funny here is that the lead character doesn't even really know himself, right? So you, we're going on this journey of self-discovery with him. Um, pop culture is full of amnesiacs and people having an identity crisis, but the tourist turns those tropes into something that is raucously funny. It's action-packed, um, but it's often uh, a meaningful story about second well, in this case, probably more like fifth or sixth chances. Um, but, you know, there there are so many different layers to it. Uh, Danielle McDonald, who uh, plays the female lead, Helen, should be cast in every rom-com going forward. And I think that once season two is out, Jamie Dornan uh, is not going to have to worry about being associated with Christian Fifty Shades of Grey anymore. I All think right. this is going to be his defining role. The Tourist, its second season streaming with all six episodes. Episodes dropping today on Netflix. Sense and Sensibility gets a new adaptation of the Jane Austen classic, this time on Hallmark Network and the streaming service Hallmark Movies Now. Melanie? Yes. You know, this is one of those adaptations that follows up, of course, um, you know, after what Shonda Rhimes did with Ridgerton on Netflix, which is to bring people of color into these Regency era stories um, and Regency style stories um, that have traditionally been told with entire white casts. By taking this sense and sensibility and um, casting, for instance, as as the lead, you have um, Deborah Iorende um, as the as Eleanor uh, Dashwood. You have all these wonderful people who are, you know, in, in this role, these roles that are very well known and beloved, particularly to Jane Austen fans. It's not just a you know tip of the hat and acknowledging that yes, you know, people of color, particularly Black viewers, love these um, stories too. But um, there are so many details throughout that actually um, also acknowledge the fact that you know people of color actually existed in this area uh, in this in this era as well, um, and a lot of their stories um, haven't been adequately told through the years, especially on television. 
Um, and I've got to note that the producers behind this, um, including one of one of the people that they brought in as a consultant was Vanessa Riley. She also was a consultant on Sanditon. Um, and so they took a lot of uh, different details from the story and were very, very careful and very meticulous as to how they brought this adaptation to the screen. And there are things, you know, in Sense and Sensibility, it's a very dense story, but they made it very accessible. And, you know, it's there are some things that have been compressed, but it's a delightful adaptation. We're talking about Sense and Sensibility on Hallmark Network and Hallmark Movies Now, uh, starring uh, Deborah Ayurinde and Bethany Antonia. I also want to mention the passing of Richard Lewis, the comedian uh, who was so beloved. uh, And uh, I think it was on Late Night with David Letterman nearly 50 times, uh, author of of multiple memoirs. And of course, Curb Your Enthusiasm later in his career, a prime place for him to appear. Danette, uh, your your thoughts about Lewis? It's it's really such a loss. not just because, you know, he he had such a great presence on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm where, you know, he could as, just as easily be a friend and an antagonist to Larry uh, in those stories. But, you know, like he was also just someone, you know, I, I think a lot about um, this uh, a sitcom that he starred in, uh, which was set in Chicago. So naturally it's um, to my taste, but anything but love. And he starred opposite Jamie Lee Curtis. And, you know, these days we talk a lot about how, you know, we need more like uh, unconventional romantic leads. And, you know, he, he really gave us an all timer in that uh, sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Again, uh, we lost Richard Lewis two days ago at the age of 76. There's been tremendous controversy also over the Lifetime documentary. Where is Wendy Williams? Melanie, is that documentary going to be released to the general public with all the litigation and everything around it? Well, it's it's already out. Oh, I mean, it is it's, out the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was it ran on Lifetime um, and you can access it through Lifetime's app. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually did um, re-air it. So there was litigation um, at the last moment to stop it from airing, um, but a judge ruled that it could go forward. Um, the thing is, I think that um, a lot of folks are curious about this because Williams, you know, not only had this long-standing relationship with Lifetime, this is the third of the movies that are about her, um, but you know, this was somebody who came into people's houses for many years. Every day. You know, yeah, every single day um, was very controversial, known for saying, you know, kind of like I said what I said, you know, but when you see someone like this in a vulnerable state, the fact that she, you know, is beginning to, you know, the, the effects of her um, aphasia are, are beginning to hit um, and you see yeah. that and what means the fact that she you know, I, I'm sorry to interrupt Melanie but I know yeah. it's very hard for people to watch someone that they care about and and to see you're dealing with that thanks so much Melanie McFarland Danette Chavez our TV critics joining us from all of us at AirTalk have a terrific rest of the day the LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now you can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps.